last time you put your foot in your mouth? Now notice I didn't say, have you ever put your foot in your mouth before? Because that's not really a question, is it? We've all done it. I have done it plenty of times. I have actually created hard, fast rules for myself to try to avoid as many of these situations as I possibly can. And I still don't succeed. Let me hear that. But I've created some rules to help me avoid some of them. And here's one of them that I've, I've learned. I never, ever comment that someone might be pregnant first. <laughs> ever. I don't care if she's full-term and clearly expecting, I will wait for them to bring it up before I congratulate them. The very thought that I would say something and then have the person go, I don't know what you're talking about, it like makes me throw up a little in my mouth. Like the, the sheer possibility that that could happen someday. Like, oh, how far along are you? What are you talking about? Oh, like, I just, I will never, ever mention. I don't care if you're nine months and you are ready to go. Like, I am not saying a word until you go, well, you know, I'm expecting soon. Then I'm, oh, congratulations, that's great. You know, but never before you say something first. So just so you know, if I don't, if you're expecting and I don't congratulate you, I'm waiting for you to say it first. I had a friend once, a pastor friend who did this. He made this colossal mistake and he said, I just wanted to die. Like, I just, you just would want to die if that were to ever happen. Now, we've all had times where we've just wanted to die, right? We've said something, you know, something you declared way too strongly and someone has a differing opinion than you, or something that you let slip and you really shouldn't have said anything in the moment, or something you bring up at the wrong time and you just want to die. You can't imagine. You, the, the words are floating out of your mouth and you're trying to grab them and bring them back in and you just, they're out. You, you can't do anything about it. And these times painfully teach us that there is a right time to speak and a wrong time to speak. But these times, it's sort of that trial by fire where you realize that there is a right time to speak. And I think we see it here in this passage this morning. Now, again, Esther falls into the category of Old Testament narrative. And so there are different ways that you need to read an Old Testament narrative in order to understand. You don't, you don't read a, 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 an epistle from Paul the same way you're going to read Esther. There are, some, there are some ways and some helpful tools to read narrative, Old Testament narrative, to help understand what's going on. Because a lot of time, what's being said is not explicit. There, there's things going on underneath the surface. In order to really understand what the book is or the letter is trying to do, you have to implement these tools to kind of see what's going on behind the scenes. A few weeks ago, we talked about listening for that background harmony. That oftentimes a narrative book, there's, there's, a, there's these big themes that are, co are all the way underneath the tale. And if you stop and you try to listen and see what's that connecting narrative arc that's sort of humming throughout the whole book, you'll start to pull out some of the reasons why a book is being read. I'm going to give you another one this morning. Here's one of the ways to read Old Testament narrative well is to ask the question, what is the character doing and would I have done the same thing? One of the ways, one of the ways that the Old Testament narratives help us see what the point or what's going on is to, is to do something that we don't expect from the character. 
right? They set something up, and you expect the character to do one thing, and yet they do something entirely different. And this can be tricky with us, particularly if we're familiar with these Old Testament stories, is because we've read them enough that we just assume the plot. We just accept it for what it is, and we go, yeah, that's just how the story goes. And we don't slow down to go, but is that really what the character ought to have done? Or if I was in their shoes, would I have done that the same way? And if you stop and slow down, you ask yourself the question, particularly at very strategic uh, plot points in the story, it helps you kind of start to go down a trail that the, the, the writer wants you to go down. To so say, yes, ask that question. Go explore that more. Why did they do this when everything was telling them to do that? And I think that's what's happening here in our passage. So let's play the game. Let's put ourselves in Esther's shoes and ask ourselves, if we were her, what would we do? Okay, let's play the game. Now let me set the stage for you. Haman has issued this decree to wipe out the Jews. Until now, and Esther has maintained the secret that she is Jewish, but now Mordecai, we saw last week, Mordecai comes and implore her to go before the king to petition to save her people. Her people. Esther worries that this isn't a good time to take such a risk. She hasn't been called into the presence of the king for 30 days. She figures this is probably not the best time to do it. She also knows that if I go before the king unrequested, it could mean her life. But she, she, she says, you know, she has that famous, like, for such a time as this, let's go do this. She prays and she fasts for three days. And now here we are in our part of the text, and she's about to do it. The moment of truth has arrived. So she dresses up in her royal clothes and dares to enter the king's chambers. And lo and behold, he grants her access and tells her that he is going to give her whatever she requests. Up to half the kingdom is heard. What do you need, the king asks. Okay, now put yourself in Esther's shoes. What would you have done? I don't know about you. I'd have made my request, right? Like, this is setting up perfect. It could not have gone more perfectly for Esther, right? She's worried that the king's not even going to see her, and if she attempts to do that, he's going to kill her, and even still, he might not be in a very good mood that day, and he's like, what do you want? You know, what do you want? Stop bothering me, right? Like, everything has lined up for Esther perfectly. She's come. He's pleased with her. He invites her in, and then says, oh, sweetheart, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give you. Just tell me, whatever it's, you name it, and it'll be granted for you. I mean, isn't that the time? Isn't that the moment? Wouldn't you be like, oh my goodness, like, this is, this is divine from the Lord. Like, he has just given me everything I need. He put it, he has set it up on a silver platter for me, and now oh, I, get to, I get to share my request. And instead she goes, yeah, you want to come to a party with me and Haman? What? Esther, it was right there for you. It was a softball. He lobbed it right up for you. This is everything. You've been praying for three days. You've been fasting for three days. Like, now is the moment. Why would she not ask right then and there? That's the time. And maybe we can grant her, we can say, all right, she was being smart. 
she wanted to butter him up a little bit, right? Okay, maybe I can understand. So, hey, today, she knows he's in a good mood, so, like, let's strike while the iron's hot. Hey, today, why don't you come to a banquet? I'm going to invite Haman, and we'll hang out. So King goes, okay, well, let's do that, right? Maybe she's smart in this way. She gets him fed. She gets him drinking. And then again, he says it again. He's like, okay, you got me. You know, we're at the party. We're all feeling good. But I know this isn't really what you're asking me for. So he re- reiterates, okay, hey, this is fun. We've had our good time. Okay, Esther, what is it? I'm ready. Half the kingdom is yours. Just say it. And she says, why don't you come to another banquet tomorrow? Right? Again, we know the story so well that we just kind of assume this stuff. Yeah, that's right. She invites him to a couple banquets, and then she's going to ask later on. But again, put yourself in her shoes at that moment. This is the moment for such a time as this right now. And she keeps inviting him to parties instead. What is going on there? She will never have, seemingly, never have a better chance than this. What if the king's not so favorable tomorrow? What if he has a bad night's sleep? He wakes up the next morning, he's a little grouchy. This is the moment. What's going on? Isn't this the right time to speak? Isn't this the right time to speak? But when you actually think about it, again, as we go into the backstory we remember what we've been told before, this was probably the wisest thing she could have done. And here's why. What exactly would she actually have said? If you think about it. Like that very first time. Okay, half the kingdom's yours. Let's go. What do you want? What would she have had to have said for her petition? Remember, the king doesn't know she's a Jew yet. The only thing I can, I can figure that she could have done was to flex whatever personal or political power she had over and against Haman, right? Haman wants this, O king, but I am petitioning you for that. You choose, right? Really, that's her only play. There, there's nothing else she could do. She's going to have to reveal a motivation for why she wants that. She's going to have to reveal, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a Jew, and your most trusted advisor wants to do that, but I want you to do that. The, the only ask in that moment is to pit her power against his. And actually, when you think about it, chances are she would have lost. Let's think about this for a second. First, on the one side, you have Haman. Haman was the highest-ranking official, second only to the king. Here's a few clues we get in chapter 3. It says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. He was higher. He had a position higher than anybody else, second only to the king. And then when Haman wants, devises this plot to destroy the Jews, the king doesn't just agree to it. Listen to what the king does for Haman. It says, so the king took the signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Haman had offered to pay for, fund this thing. The king says, keep your money. 
the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. To hand the, his signet ring, which is what you would use to establish a law, right? He literally gives his voice and his power represented in that ring over to Haman and said, Haman, I trust you so much. I'll bankroll whatever it is you want to do. You go do it. Here's my ring. Make it happen. I mean, this is how close the king and Haman were. This is how much the king trusted him. Haman was the king's most trusted, empowered confidant. And then on the other side, you have Esther. Now, Esther's no fool. Esther knows how she came to be queen. She remembers what happened. She knows that she wasn't the king's necessarily his first choice. She knows there were queens before her, and particularly the last queen. And we're actually giving clues early on in chapter 1 about this whole queenship and what was actually going on with that role. Remember, in the very first verse of Esther, the way that the book is set up, the way that it tells us, the, the context it gives us, it says this is what happened during the time of, of Xerxes, who ruled over 27 providences stretching from India to Kush. Now imagine you're Xerxes. You've become the largest global empire the world has ever seen, sovereign over a breathtaking 127 providences stretched all over the known world. What is your new problem? How do you keep it all together? How do you keep this vast empire with all of these providences, 100, over 100 providences, with their own customs, their own languages, their own ways of doing things? How do you unify all of these separate people into one empire, most importantly, so that they will continue to bow down and accept you as their authority? How do you keep this whole thing together? In your answer, or for King Xerxes, his answer is, parties, right? We're given in chapter one, we're given this lavish description of this six-month party that the king throws. And who gets invited to this party? All the nobles and the princes and the armies, all the governors, the middle management of these 127 providences scattered across the realm. The king shows off the splendor and the glory and the benefits and the might of his new empire to all of its representatives. The king may be an immoral drunk, but he's not dumb. He knows that the sparkle and sheen of the empire's might, leavened with a healthy dose of wine, will do more to hold power than any re repressive laws or taxes or forced loyalty programs ever could. Come to a party. Who would not want to be part of this? And if I can get all the leaders to enjoy the parties, if I can get all the leaders to see the might and the extravagance of what Persia can offer, who wouldn't go back to their providences and go, you know, we got to say loyal to these guys. These guys are good, particularly the leaders, right, who are going to get all the spoils if they rule and go back to their providences and maintain the crown, the, the, the position of bowing to the crown. So there is a clear agenda here about why Xerxes is not throwing a party just because he feels generous to all 127. He is doing something wise and he's doing something cunning in order to keep control of his power. 
And at the culmination of his final party, he wants to show off the most impressive symbol of his new empire, the beauty of Persia embodied in his beautiful queen Vashti. Right? That's what a queen is, is the ultimate symbol of the beauty and the grace and the elegance of your new empire. Come, Vashti, wearing your royal crown to display before all of the providences what Mother Persia is like, the beauty and the grace. If you think of the Queen of England, right? This is, this is that whole thing. She didn't actually, by the end, hold any real political power, but she represented a whole country in her dignity and her beauty and her grace, and the people loved her for it and rallied and unified around the symbol of the queen. So when Vashti refuses to come, this isn't just a personal insult for the king. This is actually a polit- this is politically damaging. This is circumventing everything that he's been trying to do. She won't come. It undermines everything. And again, remember, what convinces Xerxes to banish her, right? Because then he's like, Xerxes is furious. He's like, what are we going to do? And he calls all his nobles together. And what's the thing that convinces him that she must be sent away? Well, it says this, the queen's conduct, this is her charge, will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. If he can't control his wife, how can he control an empire? If he can't control your wife, I mean, this is, this, the, this is what the party is for. And at the culmination, I'm going to bring the queen of Persia to display what it is to be Persia. And then she doesn't show up. Ooh, king, that's a bad look. All these leaders are going to go home and they're going to tell everyone what happened. And you think you want to try to hold power when the king can't even control his wife? Mm, Not a good look. And so he gets banished. If you can't control your wife, you can't control an empire. And so a new search for the new queen comes. What's interesting is that he doesn't pick from one of his royal lines. He doesn't say it's got to come from a royal line. It's got to come with pure Persian blood. He sends out a call to every providence in the area. Everyone, every woman from every providence can come to bo- come before the king to be considered for the queen. Why? Why wouldn't he pick, you would think, pick royalty. Pick someone, you know, with pure Persian blood who would be loyal. No, no, no. I'm going to do a search with everybody because whoever I pick will represent everybody. Because who I pick will be the representative for all. The king was looking for a woman who would effortlessly slip into the role of Mother Persia, the feminine symbol of his new empire. And the position of this queen is not to undermine the rule of the king and his decision-making. Like giving a certain someone his ring and saying, doing whatever you want with it. We look at the passage straight on and go, oh, Esther, why didn't you just ask right there? And from Esther's shoes, she'd probably lose that. If she went power v. power against Haman, she would probably have lost. If she put her power against Haman's, 
She would have lost, so she waits. She bides her time. She needs the king to see the truth about Haman for himself. She knows the right time to speak. And so she invites him to a party instead. But not just him, she invites Haman too. Look what it says. If it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now here's the fascinating part. Who's the him? Because she's speaking in, she's not speaking in, in, in uh, pronouns. She says, let the king. So she's not speaking, she's not saying you. So who's the him? Let the king, together with Haman, come together today to a banquet I've prepared for him. What scholars debate about is who this him is. Because what she's doing is she's placing a seed of doubt in the king's mind. Who is the banquet for? Is it for me or is it for Haman? Because both possibilities are not great for Xerxes, if you think about it. Possibility one is that the him is for Haman. But that possibility is troubling because why is he the focus of the banquet? I just declared love. I just declared my loyalty to you. And she's like, yes, okay, sounds good. Hey, I threw a party for Haman. You want to come? That, that, I don't like that very much. Possibility two, though, is if she's making the banquet for Xerxes, why is Haman playing third wheel to it? Right? If my wife says, hey, hey I just did something for you. I love you. Hey, what do you want? I'll do it. And and my wife goes, um, yeah, I'm throwing, a, I'm throwing a party for you, but I want my, your buddy to come too. I'd be like, I thought, this was, I thought this was a you and me thing, right? Like, what's third wheel Willie doing coming to, coming to our party? Both, both possibilities is not great. And then at, the fir- then at the first banquet, Esther invites him to a second. And look what she says here. Then she throws him for a loop. Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet. I will prepare for them. Then she switches it to them. Now, if you're the king, your head must be spinning at this point. Like, woman, what do you want? <laughs> right? What do you want? Whose parties are these for? Why are you throwing them? What is going on here? It's intentionally vague with hints of suspicion. It is believed that she is subtly planting a seed in the king's head. It's no wonder he can't sleep that night. He can't sleep. What's going on? What does she want? Why is Haman here? (laughs) What is happening? A lot of people, I've been doing, a lot of people believe uh, that Esther may be insinuating two different things here, fascinating things here. Here's the first one. By placing them as equals, Esther insinuates that Haman wants to be the king. And we actually know that's true from the text. We have a lot of of clues that let us know that Haman is hungry for power. He'd rather just be the king himself. Take a look at a few here. In Esther 3, 2, Haman is bowed down to like the king. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. So he's getting bowed down to, to start. This is why he's so furious at Mordecai, because he's the one dude that won't do it. But he's getting bowed down to like a king. 
And then a few verses later, remember, he's given the insignia ring. The king gives him the ring, says, do whatever you want with it. It says, they wrote out in the script, this is the edict to destroy the Jews. They wrote out in the script of each providence and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Haman's orders, but with the king, but with the king's voice and the king's. So Haman's getting bowed down to. Haman is speaking and commanding and giving edicts and laws on behalf of the king with the king's own voice, using the king's own ring. And finally, we know that he wants to be dressed up and paraded around the city like the king. And we're going to find this out in a few weeks. That's later on in the story. But just so you know, remember, King Xerxes, we find out, can't sleep, right? The night before the second banquet. So he asks for the royal records to be read to him. And lo and behold, he opens it up to the account of Mordecai thwarting an assassination attempt. So just by chance, the book opens and it talks about a time when someone tried to take your crown. Right? So it's like feeding into that paranoia. Like already it's like, oh yeah, I remember that time. People want to kill you. People want to take your crown. People want to usurp you. People want your job. And so Mordecai, or Xerxes, because he's so thankful, he wants to honor Mordecai. But what does he see? He sees the very man that's keeping him up at night, walking through the courtyard. Haman. The very dude, he's kind of, what's wrong with this? What, what, what's this third wheel doing here? So what does he do? He calls him in. He says, Haman, what should I do for the man the king wishes to honor? Notice he doesn't say, hey, Mordecai here, he really helped us. I want to honor Mordecai. What do you think we should do? He, I believe he intentionally says, intentionally keeps it vague, hey, I want to honor someone. What do you think I should do? Let me see, Haman, what you're going to say. Oh, and Haman falls for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Who else, Haman says, who else but me would the king want to honor? Let him, let him put on the, the king's robe. Let him ride around in the streets. This is, this is absolutely what you should do. Here's the, here's, the exact, uh, here's the exact verse. Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one, the king's, one of the king's most noble princesses. princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman thinks it's for him. So what does he want? Well, I've gotten people to bow down to me now. I've got his ring. I can make laws in his name. Now I want your clothes and your ride. Put the, put the robe on me. Put the, I want to get up on there. I want to be paraded through the streets to let him know. I wonder if Amen. I wonder if uh, King Xerxes was like, ah, I knew it. I knew it. And so what does he do? I love this. Oh, it's so good. He goes, okay, cool. Well, I was talking about Mordecai. And you're going to be the one to do it. It almost feels like the king is like, yeah, you, you need to be put in your place a little bit. So you're going to be the one to parade Mordecai around the streets in my robes, on my horse, with the seal on its head. How does that taste, Haman? Now, we don't know. 
But again, that's what biblical Old Testament narrative does, is it allows you to ask questions and look at the text and read between the lines. What, what is happening here? What, what is going on? Why wouldn't Esther just come out and say, oh, she's, she's doing something here? So Esther's insinuating, yeah, yeah, because Haman, yeah, King Haman's going to come too. Why? Because he's basically you. I mean, you give him his ring, he bows, people bow down to him. So why wouldn't I invite Haman to the party? He's basically you. Ooh, that wouldn't feel good to the king, would it? Ooh. She's allowing the king to see the truth for himself. Here's one more one. This one's, this one's a little more interesting. We'll have, to, we'll have to see. Some suggest Esther insinuates that Haman wants his crown, like we just talked about. But the second thing is that in these invitations, Esther is insinuating that Haman wants his queen too. That there's something going on. Why are you inviting Haman to a private dinner for two? There's a rabbi named Rabbi Rashi, who's the grandfather of the medieval commentaries, which is just a cool title. I'm the commentator of the medieval commentaries. Just really neat. He suggests that by making Haman a third wheel, Esther is implying that he desires her. This is what he writes. He writes this, What did Esther see to invite Haman? In order to make the king jealous of him, so that the king should think that he desired her. Okay, maybe I can buy that. I mean, this is what one rabbi says. He says, by bringing Haman in, not only is she insinuating that you're basically on equal terms, so you're bas- you know, he's basically just like you anyway, but, oh no, no, if we're having a private party, I want to bring Haman because we've got a special thing going as well. This is what this one rabbi says. Okay, except that that would make sense for later on in the story. Because if you remember later on the story, when the final confrontation does eventually happen, right, the king hears of it, Esther says, there's your enemy, there's your adversary, he's the one that's been trying to do all this. You know, because you've been up all night wondering if that's the case, it's true, and he storms off and he's upset. And then when he comes back in, listen to how it's described. Just as the king returns from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? What an odd way to say that. Why would he say that like that? To me, it feels like he assumes all his suspicions are coming true, and now he's just accusing him of doing it out in the open. Right? What, what, now you're going to just, now you're just going to do it right in front of me now? Like, I always wondered, I, I thought you might be doing this behind the scenes. Now, ooh, now you're coming. Now you're so blatant about it now. You're going to do it right in front of me. I mean, I think it does kind of feed into that idea that he might, that, that might have been swirling around in his mind too. Oh, he wants my crown. Is there something going on between me and, he and Esther too? And he can't sleep at night thinking about it. No, we don't know for sure, but this is what the text, this is the fun of the text. It allows, it invites us in. Say, what is going on here? So Esther patiently waits for the right time for Haman to be exposed. If she were to simply speak at the beginning, she would have put her strength against Haman's. Instead, she allows the king to see it for himself and use Haman's pursuit of power against him. She turns the table and allows him to see the truth for himself. 
Instead, she invites him to a banquet. Instead, she feeds her enemy and gives him something to drink. She feeds her enemy and gives him something to drink. Esther knew when it was the right time to speak. Let's call the band up as we explore this just for a few minutes here. When it comes to the right time to speak, we often get it wrong, don't we? We, we laugh about putting our foot in our mouth and making mistakes, but when it comes to the matters of the heart, we too struggle so often to know when it's the right time to speak. The wrong time to speak critically about someone is when they're not there. It's called gossip. And it's an outlet to voice our power. If you, if you, if you really understand gossip in its, at its core, it's really pinning your, passively pinning your power up against somebody else's. I don't like what you're doing. I think what you're doing is, is not great. And so I'm going to passive-aggressively put my power up against yours by letting everybody else know what I think. It's a, it's a passive power play. And we often do this we speak with this false spirituality when we do it. Like, now I don't, I don't want to say anything, right? This is how we do it, right? This is how we, we, we put the false spirituality to it. I'm just concerned, right? We'll say something like that. I'm just concerned. Or, you know, I just don't know if that's the best thing for our family and for our church that this person does. And there it goes. We use this false spirituality in order to justify pinning our power against somebody else passive-aggressively. It's the wrong time to speak. There are people in this church that you have an issue with. I mean, it's human nature. There's enough people in this room. There are people in this room right now, or aren't here today, but will be, that you have an issue with. And when we speak about them, we'll often do it and be the wrong time to speak. Real spiritual maturity is seeking them out, hearing them out, and figuring out how to live at peace with everybody. The wrong time to speak is when you want to sound smart or witty and influential. It's called pride, and that one's hard. The wrong time to speak is when you want to justify yourself I believe this is actually one of the biggest hidden temptations in the American church. We're wronged. Something goes wrong. We perceive that there's something and we just want to say it. Because it either makes us feel good because we somehow believe that we've got all the answers. Anything less would feel like witness, a weakness. In times of conflict, we are drawn to pin our strength against the other whether it's act for passive. And when we do that, we will always lose. Gossip will always lose. Pride will always lose. Justification will always lose. Instead, what would it look like to feed our enemies and give them something to drink? To know the right time to speak. Romans 12 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
for it is written, it is mine to avenge, not ours. It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. For not, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And God will take care of the rest. And this is hard. And we won't be able to do it on our own. That's why I love that we learn before Esther even walks into that room, she spends three days in prayer. She says, God, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm going to walk in and there was a murderer out to kill our, our entire nation. I'm going to blurt out something. I'm going to do something wrong. I am not going to say the right thing, Lord. I'm going to spend three days praying and fasting that you give me the wisdom to know when it's the right time to speak. And this doesn't mean we don't speak up, but when we speak up, the time is right. And we pray and seek the Lord's wisdom as to when and how to speak. And we leave the rest up to God. Lord, we just pray right now, God. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room now that are struggling with someone. It might be too aggressive to say an enemy, but someone that has just been difficult in their lives. Whether it's here, whether it's in their neighborhood, whether it's in their workspace. And everything in us wants to speak at the wrong time. To speak in pride. To speak in judgment. To speak in gossip. To make ourselves feel better. To pin our power against theirs. And we will lose. Our soul will lose. Our heart will lose. God, show us where we can feed our enemies. Show us where we can give them something to drink. And show us when is the right time to speak. We can't do this without you, God. We pray for wisdom. We petition. We abide. Because left on our own, we will not do this well. We need you, Jesus. Show us the best way. Show us when the right time to speak.